Heavenly Father, we uh, adore you, uh, we love you, we give you praise and ascribe to you glory for all that you have done for us. Uh, you have called us out of darkness uh, and into marvelous light. Uh, as we'll see from your text, uh, your Son was the light that came into the world, and uh, the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, so we thank you, we give you praise for this mighty salvation we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, your Son. Uh, may we uh, study him now, uh, learn more about you, about your uh, tender heart for sinners like us, and give you praise all of our days. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off last week with uh, Mary's uh, song of praise uh, as she uh, arrives uh, to... Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's house uh, to visit with them after she received the news of, uh, from the angel uh, that she would also, uh, like Elizabeth, uh, bear a son. Uh, this uh, son's uh, name would be uh, Jesus, uh, and he would be uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, a special son of great significance, uh, none other than the Savior of the world. And so we were looking at Mary's song of praise, that she responds uh, with joy. And one of the notes we made last week was how this song is grounded in biblical revelation, that Mary uh, knew her Bible and knew it very well, that she was grounded in Scripture uh, from a young age, uh, and herself uh, still being relatively young. Uh, but... Uh, but she uh, knew her scripture, she knew her Bible, uh, she knew uh, the, the, the faith that had been passed down from generation to generation. As one uh, commentator put it, uh, he said that Mary tried to put virtually the whole Bible into her song. We mentioned last week how Mary's song uh, um, has a lot of parallels with Hannah's song in the book of, of 1 Samuel. Uh, Hannah herself, who, who uh, God blesses with a son, um, uh, the son Samuel. But, uh, so Mary's song uh, has a lot of parallels with that, but it has a lot of parallels, a lot of, a lot of allusions, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, 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 it's full of Scripture. It's full of the Psalms. It's full of, of God's uh, stories, of God's redemptive acts. Uh, like the Exodus event, like the, the promise given to, uh, to, um, to Abraham, uh, how he worked uh, through uh, God's, uh, or how God worked uh, in the lives of the people of Israel and delivered them from, from all of their, their sin, and how uh, God from, from all time has been this mighty Savior God for his people. And so Mary's song, uh, we can divide up into uh, three uh, different... Um, Three different sections, um, and this is w- right where we left off uh, last week, just looking at it a little bit. Uh, so the first uh, f- couple verses of, uh, of this Magnificat, as it's called uh, from the Latin, uh, is Mary's joy in God's salvation. So Mary's singing God's praise for uh, her salvation, and in this sense, uh, she's, she's thinking of, of uh, God's mercy toward her individually, uh, but her words uh, extend out to, uh, to all people, and we can all rejoice with Mary. Uh, so if you look with me in verses um, 46 and following, Mary begins and says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Well, why does she magnify the Lord? Why does her spirit rejoice in God? Well, it's because this God, this, this Lord, is a Savior. It's a saving God. And so again, we made the point, we'll make it again, uh, that Mary was just as in need of a Savior as, as all of us. Uh, she is an example of, of uh, a pious uh, faith in, in God who is a Savior. Uh, and so uh, she, she begins in this way, uh, that uh, she is rejoicing in God who is her personal Savior and who is the Savior of all of God's people. In verse 48, she says that he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself. For behold, she says, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And this is not a mandate, again, uh, just because of some of the error in this in, in teaching, especially from uh, the Catholic Church, just to be clear, this is not a mandate from Holy Scripture that we ought to venerate Mary 
as, as uh, blessed in this way, that uh, we, we should honor her or uh, pray to her or uh, worship her or venerate her. That's not what she is, is claiming here, but instead she's pointing to God as the one who pours out his, uh, this particular grace upon her, and she's declaring that God is holy and merciful and pours out grace from generation to generation. And so what God has done for Mary is an expression of God's mercy uh, on all people, which is what the angels will declare uh, that we'll get to in a little bit uh, to the shepherds. So it is the holy and merciful God who is to be venerated. God, uh, Mary's song is pointing away from herself toward this holy and merciful God. And so to regard Mary as blessed is simply to praise God for what he has done for her and what he has done through her, this humble servant, to uh, save the world through the birth of this, this child, uh, the Son of God. And so she says, uh, for his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Uh, sorry, going back to verse 49 is, uh, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And then she extends that out. Now she's transitioning from herself and showing that this is not just for me, but it's for, for all those who fear him from generation to generation. And so that brings her to this, uh, this second uh, part that we could, uh, as we divide up uh, Mary's song, is the mighty power of God. And, and we see that this is God's mercy for all people. So Mary says in verse 51, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, in the thoughts of their hearts. Excuse me. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's lifted those up. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And so we see in Mary's song that this, this is a, a, the great reversal of fortunes, that God is the God for the poor and the needy and the hungry, uh, that the physician came to heal the sick and not the healthy. Uh, and, and Mary, she's evoking these, these, uh, um, these moments from her history that, she's so, uh, that are so well known to her. She talks about the, the Exodus event, God's, God's mighty arm, uh, that, uh, with an outstretched arm that, that God delivered his people uh, from, uh, from their slavery in Egypt. He's, he's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. Uh, this is what God has done throughout the history of Israel up to this point, and now in God's, God's uh, this, this one uh, culminating event in human history where God will show forth uh, the power that he has uh, through the birth of this, of this uh, child that's given to her. And then the final um, part, the final um, couple verses of her song we see her highlight specifically the fulfillment of the promises that God has made in Scripture. She says in verse 40, uh, 54, He has helped his servant Israel, specifically now referring to God's, God's people Israel, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary concludes this hymn of praise with a reminder of the promise that was given to Abraham. And the promise to, uh, of Abraham's offspring. And so if we look briefly at Galatians 3, we see Paul make this exact point. Talking about the righteousness that comes through faith. And talking about God's uh, covenant mercy. He says in verse 16, now the promises, uh, Galatians 3 verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is Mary's point here. She sees God's redemptive act unfolding. Uh, she was a student of Scripture. And so again, it's so important that we that we ourselves are, uh, are saturated in Scripture, that we're teaching it to our children, we're catechizing them. Uh, we are doing that in family worship. We're doing that on the Lord's Day like we're gathered here today. Uh, but we see 
um, how Mary sees this event as fulfilling these, these covenant uh, promises. And so jumping forward, we, we, uh, we see verse 56, that Mary returns home, uh, or that she, she stayed about three months and then she returns home. So she stays, uh, if you remember, she gets there around the sixth month, she stays another three months, uh, so it's possible she might have been there for the birth of, of John uh, the Baptist. We're not told uh, specifically, um, but uh, she does return home. And now the story shifts back to, to John, and, um, and we see that uh, he's born. Uh, his name is John. Um, this was uh, the fulfillment of, or this was the sign that was given to Zechariah for doubting the, doubting the angel. Uh, uh, how, how is this going to happen? Uh, on whose authority? Uh, the angel says, well, it's on my authority. My name's Gabriel. Uh, you, you might know me. I stand by uh, God Almighty uh, next to his throne. He sent me personally to tell you this, and since you asked for a sign, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to talk again until uh, your son is born. And so uh, we, we pick up in that story, and uh, the, the child is uh, circumcised on the eighth day, and uh, since Zechariah is not speaking, uh, the people around there, uh, I'm in verse 59, sorry, I'm just going to fly through this quickly. Uh, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, uh, as was a tradition to, to use a family name. But his mother answered, in verse 60, no, he shall be called John. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, uh, an iPad, and, uh, or no, probably uh, some kind of wax uh, tablet or something like that. And he wrote on it and said, his name is John. And they all wondered. But then, verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. And what was the first thing he spoke? He spoke a blessing to God. And the fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. What will this child be? What will he do? But Zechariah he has, a, uh, he has an idea of what this son, what this child is going to be. And so he himself, uh, like Mary, uh, he, he bursts into song. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and he prophesies and he says these words. And, um, and so uh, he first uh, speaks about God's redemption of his people uh, through Jesus. Uh, so it's interesting, and we'll, we're going to look at this in depth going forward now here. But he, his song begins not with John, but it begins with Jesus. He'll get to John, and he'll, he'll sing a song of praise about him at the end, but it begins uh, with Jesus, because that's what John's ministry was about, and Zechariah understood that, that his ministry was to proclaim Jesus, and so his song begins with uh, Jesus. And so if we, we go through uh, Zechariah's song of praise, the beginning of it, we see specifically uh, what he is, uh, or a full a full picture of God's act of redemption in Zechariah's song, and so we'll go through this verse by verse, and we'll we'll see uh, just how uh, God is accomplishing redemption through this this child, this this uh, son of Mary, uh, who is Jesus. So uh, he says, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and He has redeemed His people," and that's why He's to be blessed and honored and glorified. He's visited and he's redeemed his people. Well, how has he done that? He's done that by raising up a horn of salvation for us. Uh, He's raised up a Messiah. He's raised up a means of salvation. He's raised up the Christ, the Christ who is uh, from the house of David. He's done all of this, he goes on, in accordance with the prophets, by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. And this Messiah, this horn of salvation, he's the one who's going to save his people from their enemies, from the hand of all who hate them. And he's going to do this in accordance with this covenant mercy. 
according to the, the covenant that he's made with, his, with the forefathers, the, uh, going back to Abraham, like in Mary's song. He's going to show uh, steadfast love, covenantal loyalty, mercy in accordance with his holy covenant, in accordance with the oath that he swore at the first to Abraham, their father. And all of this, so from the promise given to Abraham of an offspring, an offspring who would be a son of David, who would be a king like David, the Messiah who would be raised up to bring about salvation for his people, save them from their sins, save them from their enemies, to redeem them. All of this, he says, is to grant us that. So this is the the purpose statement. So that... We, being delivered, being saved, that we might serve him. And then we might serve him in holiness, that we'd be holy as he is holy, that we'd be righteous before him all our days. And Paul will say that in 2 Corinthians. He who knew no sin became sin. This, this son of David, this Messiah, came to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God, that we would be righteous before him all our days. And so in this, this one prophecy, this song, this, this uh, praise to God, Zechariah outlines God's plan of redemption through this son uh, whose name is Jesus. And so then he goes on and he he um, then turns his attention now in verse uh, 76. says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so we see again, even John's, uh, even Zechariah's own son John, he, he gets a little bit of the spotlight, but really none at all, because even in bringing him up, uh, his only purpose is to make known this great and mighty Savior uh, who, who brings light to those who sit in darkness. And so we see a uh, direct connection then uh, to um, both to uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, we, we see the connection of, of uh, John the Baptist's ministry that's uh, prophesied in the end, uh, or in, uh, in the end of uh, Malachi. And we also see the fulfillment of the messianic promise of the child uh, born to us in Isaiah chapter 9. But uh, I put up a bit of the John's beginning of John's gospel. Let me read uh, for us uh, just a portion of that first chapter, just to see the connection that's being made here. And we know the beginning of John is, is so well known, where John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 4 he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 6, like we have on the screen, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is Zechariah's son. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, John was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. Going on, John, uh, Gospel of John, chapter one, verse nine says, "The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God." who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me see in Luke's gospel, this, this son, this, uh, uh, we're told in verse 80, 
said, This child grew up and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so that, that concludes this, this introduction, beginning section of the prophet of John, the one who is going to come and, and bear witness about the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness, the light that's coming in the person of Jesus. Well, are there any questions before we move on to the story of the birth of Jesus, which we'll get to uh, today? Are there any, any questions about uh, anything or any thoughts uh, before we go on? Yeah, that's a great question. So the question, uh, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us uh, from on high. And the question is, what exactly is, is Luke uh, trying to convey there? What is he, what is he mentioning? Uh, the ESV has a footnote as well. Uh, it says, um, when the sunrise shall dawn upon us, or some manuscripts saying, since the sunrise has visited us. And I think the, the question uh, is um, around that specific word, uh, which can refer to the sun rising, uh, which is uh, what Luke is trying to say here, that this is the, the dawn of, of the new uh, work that God is doing. Uh, the word used for sunrise there is also um, can be used uh, metaphorically as a, a, a sprout, coming out of the ground. And uh, so in some ways, it's also referring to uh, Jesus as the, the root of, of David uh, from the stump of Jesse. And, and so again, referring to uh, this, this new act, this new moment that God is, is, is working in, in history of, of this, this dawning of, of a new age, the, the new covenant, as it were. And so, um, so that's what, what uh, Luke is wanting to convey here, that this is, this is the, the Lord of all glory. Uh, the light is coming into the world, likening it, likening it to a sunrise, and, and pulling uh, some imagery from, uh, from um, uh, Malachi, like you mentioned, uh, in, in trying to describe what's, what's happening here. So it's a, there's, there's, there's more to it that we could maybe say and get into, um, but I'd be happy to talk more about that maybe uh, after the class. There's a lot there, but the main point remains the same. However, we want to understand exactly what he's saying is that this is, a, this is the, the coming of, of Christ. Is, is the, is he's w- working uh, salvation in real time in history. Uh, Christ is coming into the world. The incarnation is, is happening. And so, uh, can we mix providence in there anywhere? Well, providence is in there all over. All of it's providence. Yeah, God is working in history uh, to accomplish this uh, salvation. And so, if we go back to John briefly, John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or uh, tabernacled, there's a word there, he became a tabernacle, he became the temple among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. And that's what we'll see in this next chapter. This chapter where uh, the word does become flesh, the birth of Jesus uh, Christ. I'm always reminded when I get to this section uh, of of uh, growing up in Iowa and going to church uh, every Lord's Day with my uh, grandparents, and we'd go and get dinner uh, after uh, lunch after service together. And uh, my grandfather would always uh, read uh, from a devotional and a portion of scripture after lunch. I was always ready to go outside and play or to go watch TV or to go do something else, but I had to sit and listen. And um, I'm much more thankful for that now uh, than maybe I was back then, because it was a wonderful thing he was doing. Uh, but I always remember their house. They had an old uh, box TV downstairs with uh, just a simple antenna that never worked. They got maybe 10 or 12 channels, but there's only two that ever came in clearly. There's only two channels they ever got clearly, and it was C-SPAN and C-SPAN 2. <laughs> Those are the only two channels for whatever reason not Nickelodeon, uh, not any of the local channels to watch a, a football game or anything. And sometimes we can feel that way when we read Luke because he's so historical 
and he's so concerned about the, the political uh, happenings of the day that it can feel like we're reading C-SPAN at times when we read these details. But what's important, buddy, getting back to your point, is we see God's providence in the details. And so when we turn to uh, chapter 2, the first couple verses, we, we get these, these details of the political happenings of the day. There is a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, uh, world should be registered. Caesar Augustus, he's the, the first Roman emperor, uh, grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, his uh, name was uh, Octavius. Uh, he was given the name Augustus uh, when he uh, took over power. Uh, a, a regal name, uh, the regal name Augustus, and uh, he oversaw that period that we know as the, the Pax Romana, uh, this period of, of peace uh, throughout the empire. And uh, part of uh, his reign is he is uh, going through these several uh, periods of registration and, and censuses uh, in order to um, tax the people, in order to get the revenue for the kingdom. And so this is what he's doing here. He's uh, registering, um, doing a registration uh, for all the world, it says. So the, the, the whole uh, Roman Empire, as it were. And so verse 2, we're told this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of uh, Syria. Now, I just want to make a brief note about this. I don't want to spend too much time on it, and we can talk more about it after the, after the class. Because this is one of those notes that um, you, you might have uh, heard this already, or you might have seen it in your study Bible. This is one of, those, uh, uh, one of the things that people point to as an example of an inaccuracy, an example of error, historical error on Luke's account. And so I just want to briefly address what the error is and suggest to you uh, a couple reasons why it's not uh, an error. And uh, so the error is... Uh, or the the purported uh, error is because we have these two firm dates. We know that Luke is bo- or that Jesus is born during the reign of Herod the Great, and Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. So we know that Jesus' birth occurred probably in that same year, sometime in 4 BC. We also know that there was a specific census that was done by Quirinius in the year 6 AD. And this census is referenced uh, by um, this uh, census is referenced by Luke in Acts, Acts uh, um, uh, five uh, thirty-seven, because the census uh, caused an uprising and uh, a revolt. And uh, Gamaliel is speaking about this uprising in his speech in Acts chapter five. Uh, so, how do we? So how do we reconcile these two, num- these two dates? Jesus was born in 4 BC, but we're told that this is the first registration of Quirinius when he was governor, and he was governor beginning in 6 AD. So there's those 10 years of difference. So I just want to bring that up, and we can talk more about it later. because here's, So you can see why there's some tension there on the surface. How do we reconcile these two things? Well, there's, there's two possibilities we're not sure which one is right. Either of them could be, and, and uh, I'm personally happy with either of them. So the first possibility is simply that uh, this was a, the, these registrations, the, these, uh, these census taking, uh, take a long time. And so it's very possible that this registration began under a different administration, and Quirinius continued that work and was completed during his tenure as governor of this region. And that seems very likely, and we can see examples of that, of uh, different administrations in our country, talking about uh, how one administration carries on the work of the next, and maybe we attribute some work to this administration, even if the, the actual work began sometime in the past. It's also possible that he served in some capacity, maybe not formally as a governor, and himself began this work around the time uh, that Jesus was born. So that's one possibility which is very likely, and no reason to doubt it. There's another possibility, and you'll see this. The ESV has a footnote, and it says, uh, this was the first registration 
and then it has a footnote number two, and then it says, or it could be translated a different way, and it says, this was the registration before. So if we were to translate it differently, we could say, this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so what the, the difference is we could translate the word first to be first, or we could translate it to mean before. So either Luke is saying this was the registration that Quirinius did, uh, or he's saying this, was, this registration of Caesar was the registration before Quirinius did his registration in 6 AD. And in that case, uh, that also makes perfect historical sense, because then Luke is just simply stating, don't get confused. This was a registration that took place at an, around 4 BC when Jesus was born, and I'm not talking about the registration that caused a riot in 6 AD when Quirinius was governor. So those are the two possibilities, and I, I only bring those up uh, just to demonstrate that uh, Luke very much uh, was a student of history. He was so accurate in all of his uh, all of his uh, his references. Uh, he uh, studied uh, very well, and this is holy scripture. Uh, it is inerrant. It is without error. And when we do come across discrepancies on the surface, we could say. Uh, Our default response is one of humility and of further study uh, because we know that this is God's holy, infallible, and errant word. And so I wanted to mention that just as a way of encouragement to you. And if you have come across that, uh, just as a give you a couple uh, possible reasons why uh, this this, uh, could be uh, the case. So I'm going to stop there. It really is not a... um, a, a major point for us going forward, but I'm happy to talk about that more uh, later. What is of importance is that all of Luke's details show God's absolute perfect sovereignty over all kingdoms, all nations, all governments, everyone. And he uses the, the folly of these governments to achieve his own ends. Our God is an awesome God. Well, how does He how does He do this? Well, all all everyone is to be uh, is is to be registered, and so we see since already to be registered, uh, we see um, uh, that Joseph then takes his family up to uh, from Galilee uh, up to uh, the town of to uh, Bethlehem in Judea. And sometimes when we talk about going up, we refer to going uh, north, uh, but uh, Bethlehem in Judea is south of Galilee, but it's next to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is on the mountain. You go up uh, to the Mount of Jerusalem, and so, uh, so Joseph and his family go up uh, southward, as it were, uh, down to Bethlehem to be registered there because, we see, he was in the house and lineage of David. And uh, Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And again, notice that Mary, uh, Luke is very uh, uh, particular in his word choice to mention again that uh, Mary is still betrothed. We talked about that last week. She was still in that, that period of, of uh, promise to Joseph, but have not yet consummated the marriage. And so again, he's highlighting the virgin birth here, that Mary is one who is with child. And I love that way to talk about uh, pregnancy because pregnancy just sounds like a uh, like a uh, medical term, but she's with child. Uh, there's a, there's a child uh, being carried uh, inside her womb, but she's with child yet. Uh, she's betrothed. She's not yet married. She's not yet uh, consummated that relationship. And Luke make, Luke uh, uh, makes specific effort to point out that fact. And so, uh, so Joseph is going to uh, Bethlehem because he is of the house and lineage of David. And so uh, we can see in First Samuel 16 some of the, the history of David in, in the town of Bethlehem. But uh, of importance for us is, is uh, and what demonstrates God's sovereignty is Micah chapter 5. And let's just read this and we'll keep going. But we see 
God gives this, this prophecy through his servant Micah to his people who are under judgment uh, for their sin and, uh, and uh, face exile. But he says in Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And if you jump down, you'll see in verse 4, he talks about how this, this one who has come, he's going to stand and he's going to be the shepherd of the flock. And he's going to go in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the Lord. But we see here this prophecy that this, this, this one who is to come, this Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. And we even see that uh, later on in, um, in the Gospel of John as Jesus is coming on the scene. Uh, they're talking about that. And they, they say, well, isn't the, one, isn't the Messiah to be from Bethlehem? So they, the, the people of God, they understood this prophecy. This uh, was a very specific uh, prophecy, of a very specific fact that the, the promised Messiah was from Bethlehem. And so when they were awaiting him, they, they knew these, these certain things that needed, these qualifications, as it were, that needed to be met in order for this person to be the Messiah. And so we see then God's sovereign hand behind all these things, raising up, Caesar Augustus, raising up the governors, uh, Quirinius, raising up all these people, all the different machinations of the political world, all working together to serve God's one singular purpose, to raise up a, uh, this Jesus who is the Messiah. Why uh, did Quirinius and why did Caesar Augustus do this registration and this census? It's because God ordained that to happen so that his promises would be fulfilled in Holy Scripture, that the son of the promise would be born in Bethlehem. And so then we get to the uh, moment of, of the birth. While they were still there, there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And now we have to start talking about some of the, the birth narratives and the Christmas uh, stories that we hear that are sometimes uh, more or less biblically accurate. And, um, and I've just had a, a rough time of, of studying this passage and then just having Christmas songs just flood into my head and then getting stuck there. It's like, well, I guess it is July, so maybe we're celebrating Christmas in July. And maybe that's what we're doing as we study this here. Uh, but first of all, we see that this is... Mary's firstborn son, and we know from, uh, from uh, the Mosaic Law, uh, from Holy Scripture, uh, that the firstborn son was set apart, was set apart uh, that God claimed uh, the firstborn, and that uh, this is the firstborn son uh, whom God loves, and he is uh, the son of David, as we shall see. And this, this child is laid in a manger, uh, laid in a feeding trough. Uh, where the animals fed. Um, away in a feeding trough isn't as uh, catchy of a tune, uh, so usually we just refer to it as a manger. But we see this, this Lord of glory is born in these lowly and humble conditions. And he's, he's born in this lowly condition because there's no place for him in the inn. And this is one that is much better translated as guest room. Uh, I don't know uh, if you, um, growing up, or you have a picture of, of the birth account. Uh, growing up for me, I always pictured uh, Joseph and Mary arriving late at night and rolling up to the local motel and seeing that there was a no vacancy sign uh, lit up. And so they had to go and find uh, some barn uh, somewhere uh, for Jesus to give birth. Uh, but that's, that's not exactly the case. Uh, we, we see that uh, in verse uh, 6, it says, while they were still there. So they, they had arrived in Bethlehem, and they had been there for, we don't know how long, but for a time. And while they were there is when Mary, when the time for, uh, for her to give birth came. Uh, so it wasn't a late-minute arrival right at the nick of time. And then we're told that they, there was no place for them in, in the guest room. So this is not a picture of a greedy innkeeper who 
refuses this, uh, this pregnant woman a place to stay. Uh, but what was very common in that time period was for, uh, for members uh, or citizens to have uh, a guest room in their home. And that room would be available to travelers. And all Joseph would have to do is to arrive in his hometown uh, and announce himself as a descendant of, of uh, David. I belong to the line of David, uh, to the house of, uh, to, the, to, uh, to Bethlehem. And he would have been given a, a guest room to stay in. Uh, but what seems to be the case is uh, someone of higher status uh, beat Joseph and Mary out of the guest room. And so, though they were going to stay with one of his kinsmen, they were forced to stay in the place of the, the home where the animals uh, stayed, uh, which could have been a separate um, room or attachment to the house. It could have even been a cave. And some have speculated that Jesus was born in a cave, uh, in this laid in a manger, and he would be buried uh, after his death in a cave. But at any rate, we see that the Lord of all glory was born in these lowly uh, conditions. He was born uh, in these in a lowly estate, born under the law, as it were. And just to see if uh, I'm going to try to get through uh, the rest of uh, up to verse 21, just to give us a, a good ending place, and if there's time, we can talk about any questions we might have. Because we see, uh, again, God's, uh, one of Luke's major themes is uh, God's love and his care for those who are of a lowly estate. And that cannot be overlooked, uh, that uh, the Lord of all the universe was, was born of a woman. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths, just like all of us were. And that's something we can't overlook. Uh, and he, he, was not, uh, he did not appear in radiant glory as a conquering king. He will appear that way uh, when he comes again, but in this first coming, he appeared uh, as, a, as a baby uh, who was uh, dependent, not self-sufficient. Now, there's no, no child is born completely self-sufficient. Uh, that's, that's obvious. But just think of, of that fact, that he was born in this, in this way. And then, uh, just as, as uh, he was born in a lowly estate, his, his proclamation of the good news is first given to those who are of a lowly estate, uh, given to the shepherds. Uh, shepherds uh, who uh, were, um, were, were not uh, they, uh, on the social uh, status, the socioeconomic uh, status, were not of high status. But those are the ones to whom uh, the Lord Jesus, who is the good shepherd, uh, came and proclaimed uh, by his angels the good news of his, his birth. So the angel of the Lord appears uh, to the flock, or to the shepherds watching over their flock, and the the glory of the Lord showed around them, and uh, the shepherds, uh, like everyone who, who sees a mighty angel, they, they fear, but the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so I want to look, uh, there's so much we could look at in this, this one verse, this, this one section. This is, uh, this is good news. It's a proclamation. This is an announcement. Uh, there, he's not, uh, the angel doesn't give them a mission to accomplish in order to achieve salvation. That's not what the gospel does for us. The gospel is a proclamation. It's news. We receive it. And so what is the content of this good news, and why is it a means or a reason for great joy? And we see this in the threefold uh, message of, of the gospel that the angels give him. They say that it is uh, born this day. So this is the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come, Paul says in Galatians 4, Jesus was born. Long ago... Uh, by many prophets in many ways God spoke, but in these last days, the author Hebrews says, God spoke through his Son. So this is, it's this day. There's no more waiting. There's no more anticipation. But the, the Son has risen, as it were. The, the, the time has come, and God is fulfilling these, these promises. So born this day, born in the city of David. So not only is the, are the promises of Scripture being fulfilled, 
but, uh, and being fulfilled this very day, but they're all being fulfilled down to the very last detail. This is the son of David. This is the one you've been waiting for. These shepherds would have known, uh, like Mary, they would have known the promises of God, the, the scriptures, the, the prophecies contained therein. And they knew that this, this one who's to be uh, the Messiah would be born in the city of David. And so the angel makes that part of the message, that this is the one that you've been waiting for. And this is none other than a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the, the horn of salvation, as Zechariah prophesied in verse 69. Uh, this is not just any, any old person. This is a Savior, which is why his name is Jesus, which, which means Yahweh saves. It's that name Yeshua. It's the name Joshua. It's Jesus. He, he's a Savior. And he isn't just any Savior. So this isn't just any, any old boy that was born. He's a Savior who is the Christ, who is the Lord's Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He's the one that's sent by God to accomplish this task of salvation. And not only that, but the angel say, uh, says that this Christ is the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How can the Lord say to my Lord? Well, because the Messiah is the Lord. So God's anointed is, is God himself. And this is all wrapped up in to the angel's uh, proclamation to the shepherds. And they leave him with uh, a sign of this, this child who is, is born uh, to them. And again, I won't read that, but uh, that, that um, wonderful, uh, beautiful uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 of the child who is born uh, unto us. This child is born unto the shepherds. It's born unto all who hear the good news. This child was born for them, for their salvation. And they're given a sign, and, they, and the angels say, this is the sign. You will go. You'll see a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And that's how you'll know when you've found the one who is promised. And suddenly there's a great multitude of angels they're singing, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so we see that God's peace extends to men of his good pleasure, which is a very technical term to refer to God's elect. God has sent his son to save his people, the people with whom God is well pleased. Why is he well pleased with them? Because from all eternity, he is uh, predestined them for adoption to be sons through his son, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. And this is the proclamation to them that they will have peace, an everlasting peace. It's not the Pax Romana. This is an everlasting peace. It won't just last a hundred years. It'll last an eternity because this king, this Caesar, this ruler, his kingdom has no end. And so this is the promise given to the shepherds of an everlasting peace that we have as we are reconciled now back to God through the work of this child born in a manger. And so, again, just going quickly, after they, they heard this proclamation, what do the shepherds do? Well, they, they uh, finish up their work for the day. They decide to get an early... Uh, go to bed early and they'll wake up the next day and then they'll, they'll figure out what to do from there. No, it says that they go in haste. They, they hurry. Uh, they are overwhelmed with this, this, uh, this news that they've received. They say at once, let us go to Bethlehem. Let us see this thing that has happened. Let us see it for ourselves. And verse 16, they went with haste. And there they found Mary and they found Joseph and they found the baby according to the angel which gave them the sign. This baby was lying in this manger in the animal stables, and the feeding trough. And when they saw it, they made known everything that was told to them. And people were wondering at the shepherd's words. You know, this was, this was news that was spreading. Uh, what, what, what could this child be? Could this really be the Messiah? Could this really be the one who was promised? But we're told Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Uh, Mary's... Uh, again, she's this uh, uh, example of a faithful 
uh, servant of God, that she, uh, she's, not omni- she's not omniscient. Uh, she, she's also growing in her knowledge and in her faith, and, and she's, she's pondering these, these things. She's storing them, treasuring them up in her heart. What, what could this child of mine be that, that she loves so dearly? Uh, what, what mother is there who does not love and, and cherish their children? And so here she is, uh, wondering about these things, what they might mean, and humbly relying on God. Uh, we also see the proper response to salvation. The angels go away uh, from there. And what do they do? Well, their lives are changed now because of this news. They're, they're worshiping and they're glorifying God. They're praising God because they've, they've seen the salvation that God has accomplished through uh, this child. And we'll see that uh, as well as uh, Jesus is brought to the temple. Um, and we'll see that in the, in the praises that are given uh, to him there. Um, that uh, the proper response to this amazing salvation is, is worship and, and should be our response always as well. And finally, just to conclude, we have this one last verse in verse 21. Uh, before the story uh, jumps forward in time, uh, a little bit, I guess. Um, um, going forward, Jesus will be presented at the temple on the eighth day, uh, according to uh, the word of the Lord. And then as a young uh, boy uh, coming of age, he'll again go to the temple. Sorry if I'm cutting in and out. Uh, but here we see in verse uh, 21, at the end of eight days, uh, he was circumcised and he was called Jesus, name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so again, we see so clearly Jesus was born under the law. He was born under the law and he delighted in uh, fulfilling the law and obeying the law. Uh, but this is so important uh, for those who uh, who the law is, is uh, a curse to us. We were never able to fulfill the law and its just requirements for us. Uh, but we sinned in our first parents uh, in the garden. Uh, and ever since then, being sinners, we have failed to live up to uh, God's law. But God sent his son, the lawgiver, uh, to be born under the law so that he might fulfill the law for us. And uh, in him, we might have uh, be, be freed from the curse of the law, and now we can live a life of gratitude because of his grace, because of our righteousness that's uh, received by faith alone, our justification received by faith alone. Now we can actually be law keepers uh, out of the gratitude of the salvation that we have uh, through Christ our Lord. And uh, so we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll pick up next week and, and talk more about this, this boy Jesus who was, who was born under the law and who will uh, fulfill the law's uh, commands and even his, te- uh, even his parents being uh, faithful uh, law keepers, as it were, as well, um, presenting Jesus at the temple, going through those, those things. Is this, this, uh, this young boy Jesus, he, he grows, uh, and, um, and we'll, we'll talk more about what that means, what that looks like. Uh, next week, uh, where we'll we'll pick up there. Uh, but thank you uh, for your time this morning. Uh, I'll dismiss you, uh, but if there's any other questions, uh, please feel free to uh, come up to the front, and we can talk more about that. Thanks.